Um, So let's just kind of dive right in, if you don't mind. I'll be reading in verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision. We who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. And we'll stop right there for a second. Uh, It's been a theme of our worship today, and it it, it kicks off right here in this passage, this idea of rejoicing. And and Paul talks about rejoicing throughout the book of Philippians. In every chapter of the book, there's a specific reference to rejoicing, whether a reference to his own rejoicing or a command to us to rejoice. And that's a big theme of what we're going to talk about today. However, I want to put it on the shelf for a minute. I want to get back to it. I want to kind of put that on the end as a finisher, so don't let me forget And we'll get back to it. What I would really like to start off with right now is what he talks about in verse 2. He he tells them to, excuse me, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. You know, who's Paul talking about here? He's probably talking about what we've come to know as the Judaizers. So if, and this is throughout the New Testament, if you look in um, Acts 15, uh, you'll you'll see that... uh, There was a church in Antioch, and we know from Acts 11 that it was at least partly composed of Greek disciples, so non-Jewish converts to Christianity. And in in Acts 15, it tells us that some some men from Judea came to the church in Antioch and told them, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. They were Judaizers. They were trying to force these non-Jewish Christians to take on customs of Judaism. And of course, this didn't sit well with Paul. Now, Paul was a big... The church of Antioch was near and dear to Paul's heart. It was a big part of his life. He railed against this. He and Barnabas went to um, Jerusalem, had a council with some of the uh, prominent men there, Peter, James... And, and they, they discussed this issue, and, and even Peter stood up at one point and said, Hey, you know, guys, we've been through this before. Uh, you recall that I reached out to a, a, an uncircumcised Gentile, and that, uh, that, of course, would be uh, Cornelius, and we find him in Acts chapter 10, if you want to read about that. But he was a Roman soldier. He and Peter got together. It's a fantastic story. And, and the Holy Spirit revealed to Peter that, that this Gentile, too, should be admitted into the body of Christ. But what did Peter do with um, Cornelius? Did he circumcise him and make him a Jew? Uh, no, he, he baptized him right into Christ, which is what Jesus had commanded uh, his disciples to do. So that, that sort of settled the matter for the moment. But if you look in the book of Galatians, you see that, that, it, that, it, that it comes up again. The entire book of Galatians is Paul talking to the churches in Galatia, uh, admonishing them uh, not only well for 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 buying into this Judaizing hype. And he, he even tells them, he says, you're turning to a different gospel, which is in fact no gospel at all. And he goes to the point of saying, not only, hey, you don't need to be circumcised, but he, but he takes it to the point of, if you do go down this road of accepting circumcision, you're denying the cross. And, and, and you better be prepared to take on the whole law of Judaism, which, by the way, not even the Jews can uphold. There's a stark warning. Paul was very passionate about it. And he says here in our text in verse 3, he says, it's we who are the circumcision, right? He says, 
We serve God by His Spirit. We boast in Christ Jesus, putting no confidence in the flesh. There's an interesting play of words that he puts on this. In, in, in verse 2, he refers to the mutilators of the flesh. And in some versions, in some translations, it just says the mutilation. And the, the Greek word there is katatomi. Right? Did I say it right, Cal? Katatomi. Um, and it refers, to, it refers to just the physical act of cutting. All right? Um, it could apply to circumcision, but it's a very blunt sort of harsh word of just cutting something up, right? But then when he says, we are the circumcision in verse 3, he uses a different word. It's a Greek word, paratomi, which also refers to the, the cutting act of circumcision, but it, but it also refers to what circumcision was meant to represent. People would often refer to the Jews back in this time as people of the circumcision, and they, they would use the word paratomi. And a a person of the circumcision wasn't just circumcised, but they lived out what the circumcision was meant to represent, right? So don't ask uh, your Jewish friend to help you move on Saturday. He doesn't do those kind of things. He's a person of the circumcision. Don't invite him to your keg party on Friday. He doesn't go for that kind of stuff. He's, a, he's of the circumcision. This word is, is what circumcision was supposed to represent. And, of course, we know in Genesis 17, God gives circumcision to Abraham as a sign of the covenant, right? But what is the covenant? And, and, and what happened with the, the Israelites as, as, you, as you follow their story through the Old Testament? Let's turn over to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 10 real quick to kind of get a sense and maybe give some, some clarity to what I'm trying to say here. We're going to be in Deuteronomy 10, in, in, in verse 12. Now I, just, I just want to give you a heads up. My, my, my wife, Deanna, told me, she's admonished me several times, that she accuses me of, of, of saying the scripture that I'm going to much too slowly, and then as soon as I finally say it, then I start reading it. And it doesn't give people enough time to, to get to it, and, and that's, that's, that's very inappropriate is, is according to her. So I'm going to try to repent of that. So let's talk about, <clears throat> and in doing so, I took myself to the wrong passage, so give me a second here. You guys are right, and I'm wrong, and I suppose that's probably better. Um, in Deuteronomy 10, we're going to read 12 through 16, but let's think of this in terms of what was the covenant and what was circumcision supposed to represent. And in verse 12, God says through Moses, he says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. You know, God, the, 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 the circumcision was supposed to represent something, right? It was supposed to represent this covenant, this covenant of love, of relationship, of fear, of obedience, right? 
Um, you know, John told, or Jesus told the Samaritan woman in, uh, in John chapter 4, he said, we're not, we don't need to be talking about whether we worship in, in the mountain or, or, or whether we worship in Jerusalem. We worship in spirit and in truth. It's the way we live that, we, that, that lives out that, that, that expresses the covenant with God. And of course, the Jews throughout their history, if we, if we look at the Old Testament, we see that they were constantly violating this covenant. They were chasing after the other gods that, that, that they were told not to. They were making alliances with other nations that they were warned against. They were putting their trust in worldly power, riches, uh, swords and chariots, right? And, but they held the circumcision. They made sure they, they, made sure they did the cutting. Right, but but they didn't get the other stuff, and and in that in that respect, they had become just like the other nations, and God specifically wanted them to be different than the other nations. Religion wasn't unique in these days. There were religions everywhere. There were people worshiping something everywhere. There were temples. There were ceremonies. There were rituals. Um, but the Jews were supposed to live differently. The people of the circumcision were supposed to lead lives that were different. But of course, that wasn't the case. You know, Paul says, we are the circumcision, meaning he and the men who were traveling with him and the Philippian church who had been baptized into Christ. They were living out their religion. They were worshiping in the spirit. Their confidence was in Christ, and they did not boast in the flesh. However, Paul says, if you insist on putting your confidence in the flesh or even talking about the flesh, let me tell you a little bit about myself. So, going back to Philippians 3, we'll pick up, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reread verse 3, I think, and then go on, so just bear with me. It says in verse 3, for, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. You know, Paul had credentials, right? He, he had it going on. He lists it out. He says, if, you're gonna, if we're going to put confidence in the flesh, let me tell you why I could have confidence in the flesh. And we should maybe get our heads around what he means when he says, in the flesh, right? So the flesh is, of course, the, the materialistic, the material that covers your bones, like that's the biological understanding of flesh, and that's accurate. A lot of times when we see flesh in the Bible, we think of sins of the flesh. We think of sexual immorality, adultery, um, drunkenness, uh, gluttony, and that's an appropriate application of the word as well. But what Paul's talking about here, he's not just talking about those things, he's talking about anything that you might put your comfort, your confidence, your trust, your hope in, other than Christ, anything worldly, right? And we know that's what he meant by, by the things he said about himself. He did say that I was circumcised on the eighth day. But then he goes on to say, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an Israelite. I'm, a, I'm, a, I, well, I'm not a convert. I was born this way. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm a Hebrew. He says he was of the tribe of Benjamin, which, which that would have been something that someone could boast in. Benjamin uh, was the only one of Jacob's sons actually born in the promised land. He was born of Jacob's favorite wife. Uh, when the kingdom of Israel split hundreds of years later, ten tribes made up the northern kingdom, but Benjamin stayed faithful to Judah, and they stayed in the southern kingdom. So they could say, hey, I stayed faithful to David, 
I stayed faithful to the Davidic line. I followed the commands, right? You could, you could, you could put some pride in having that family tradition, right? He also points to his uh, meritocratic affiliations. He's a Pharisee. Pharisee. Being a Pharisee wasn't like joining a country club. They lived up to what they said, right? They're, they, you know, for all for all the things we kind of throw at the Pharisees and, and, and criticize them about, rightly so. But they did walk the walk, so, so as they claimed to, right? They were very meticulous in their legalism. It wasn't an easy life. The word Pharisee speaks to this idea of being set apart. And they weren't set apart physically. They weren't like monks in the desert. They lived amongst the people, but their behavior set them apart. It wasn't an easy affiliation to, to, to carry. Paul had accomplished this. This was something that he could be proud of if he chose to. He could put his confidence in this if he wanted to do so. And then he says, as for zeal, I persecuted the church. Now that would have been a big deal even among the Pharisees. You know, we could assume that any Pharisee would have advocated for persecuting the church and would have supported persecuting the church and may have cheered on persecuting the church, but probably not very many of them actually picked up the stones and, and, and did the actual work. You know, every Monday when I go to work, and maybe you guys kind of get this too, I mean, this is every Monday during a certain time of year. I go to work and I'll run into somebody, man or woman, and they'll say, Hey, did you see what we did yesterday? I don't recall seeing you at all yesterday. Were you at church? I was at church. Were you there? No, 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 no. Did you see what we did? We, we were down by 20 at the half, and, but, but we came back, and in the fourth quarter, we did this, and we ended up winning the game. I'm like, oh, I get it. <laughs> You're talking about a football game that was played hundreds, if not thousands of miles from the couch that you were laying on. Right? And there were, there were men on the field Slamming into each other, bleeding, breaking things, throwing balls, catching balls, scoring, tackling, suffering. And they won the game. You didn't win anything. All right? That's kind of, that's kind of the idea. You know, that's probably where the Pharisees broke down. There were those that were like, yeah, go get, the, go get those disciples. But then there were guys like Paul who... Who did it? He could point to things that he actually did. These were things that he could be proud of. And the Philippians that he was preaching to in this letter that he was writing to, they may not have had a direct understanding of these Jewish credentials. They would have understood Judaism to a point because by this time they would have been reading the Old Testament. That would have been the scriptures that they would have read as part of their worship and study. But, you know, there probably wasn't a large enough base of Jews in Philippi for them to really see it lived out because we know from Acts chapter 16 when Paul got to Philippi he didn't do what he normally did in every city in almost every city he goes to on his trips he goes to a synagogue in Philippi he went to the river hoping to find a place to pray probably because there was no synagogue there probably wasn't enough Jews in the city to constitute uh, to warrant a synagogue so these, these these Philippians may not have completely got this whole Judaistic bragging that Paul was doing, but they would have understood very well what it meant to put confidence in the flesh. Let's think, remember who we're talking about here in Philippi. When we first started studying out the book of Philippians, we learned that Philippi was a prominent Roman colony. It wasn't some backwater. It was, it was a prominent city. There would have been a pride that you could attach to being a Philippian. 
Many of these people, if not most of them, were Roman citizens. That was a big deal. There were privileges granted to Roman citizens that would not be granted to non-citizens. We, we learned that many of these folks had been granted their uh, rights of land ownership or, or, or whatever their, their, in, their, uh, their domestic situation was that, that put them in Philippi. It was through military achievement. All right? these, were, these were soldiers, and not just, not just guys that did what I did. You, you enlist, you do your time, and you get out. I mean, they had done stuff. right? They had gone to battle. They had been faithful and loyal to the Caesar that would have won out. It's always good to be on the winning side. But, but they had achievement. They understood honor. This was an honor society, and you earned your honor, and you earned your place. So they would have understood what it meant to put confidence in the flesh, to put confidence in the world. And we have to be honest with ourselves. Here in 21st century America, and perhaps many other places, we eat this stuff up. I mean, this is what we, our culture is based on. It's based on accomplishment. It's based on putting confidence in the flesh. If you meet somebody at a social gathering that you've never met before and you try to start up a conversation, you're not likely to make it one minute, 60 seconds before the question, what do you do for a living, comes up. Right? Now, you might be interested in what they do for a living, but you're not really. You just are trying to size them up. Where are they in the pecking order, above you or below you? We do it with money. right? We don't talk about it but we all think about it, right? Who's making more money? Who's making less money? What neighborhood do you live in? What school district do you live in? What college did little Johnny get into? Oh, well, my Susie got into such and such a college, right? Of course, we understand the military. I was in the military. A lot of you were in the military or were in the military. The military is based on a ranking system, right? The military uniform would be all but meaningless if it didn't have the stripes or the insignia, you can meet a military guy, if you, if you know your military uniforms, you can meet a military guy that you don't even, you've never seen him, you've never recognized him, he might be in a Walmart, he's not even doing his job, but if he's in the right uniform, you can tell what he does, what his specialty is, you can tell whether he's an officer or enlisted, you can tell, if he's, in, if he's an enlisted guy in his dress uniform, if they're still the same, you can, you can even tell how long he's been in within a four-year uh, margin of error. It's all about rank, right? And I'm not knocking the military. I, I was in it, and I think that system works really well for their mission, right? And I'm not knocking accomplishment and achievement. You know, the Bible tells us to work as if we're working for the Lord. If we're giving our best, we're naturally at some point going to excel. There's nothing wrong with that. But when we start putting faith in it, when we start thinking that there's any real value there, then we are deceiving ourselves badly. And we most certainly can't let these distinctions <clears throat> come into the body of Christ. You know, Paul tells us in Galatians 3.28, paraphrasing, he says, there's, there's no Jew or Gentile, there's no free or slave, there's no male or female. We're all one in the body of Christ. We can't be ranking each other. It's inherently unchristian. It's wrong to do that. And, and in Galatians chapter 2, Paul tells, tells the story about how when Peter was visiting the church in Antioch, he was hanging out with the church, and it was a mixture of, of, of Jews and non-Jews, and, and all, everything was cool. But then when some Jewish guys from Jerusalem showed up, Peter started to act some kind of way. 
And he started to back off and distance himself. He didn't want to hang out with the Gentiles. He, he, didn't want his, he, didn't, he wasn't sure what his Jewish friends would think about that. And Paul says he confronted him to his face. He said, no, we are not going to have that in the body of Christ. You know, these worldly distinctions uh, that we can put our confidence in, they divide us. They, they, yeah. they classify us. They exclude people. And they ultimately will um, alienate us from one another. And, and the fact of the matter is, that aside, if we're putting our hope in the flesh, we're going to become a slave to it. You, we, you all do it. I do it. When, when I'm getting the promotions, when I'm getting the raises, when things are going well, when the kids are doing well in school, when you get into the college you want to get into, when you make chief, you're flying high. Right? But when those things aren't happening, you're depressed. You're bent out of shape. You're bitter. You're grumbling. You're complaining. Right? We're, we're victims of the world when we put our faith in the world. Amen? Amen. You know, the fact of the matter is, we're nothing without Christ. John 15, 5, Jesus says, outside of me you can do nothing. Right? But, but the thing is, it's not just that these fleshly things, these, these worldly things are, are of no value. They, they, can, they, can, they can trip us up and be of negative value, so to speak, in, in, in terms of the fact that they can pull us away from Christ. And, and Paul speaks to that. Um, starting in verse 7, he says, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of His resurrection and the participation in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. You know, Paul starts off this section speaking in financial terms. You know, he's talking about gains and losses. He talks about the surpassing worth. Now, for me, gains, loss, worth, I'm thinking money, right? You know... If you ever took accounting, if you took accounting 101, or even a high school level accounting, they still offer accounting in high school as an elective if you want? Yep. Okay, the world's not that far gone. Good. Um, everybody should learn a little bit about accounting, but one of the first things you learn is the idea of a balance sheet, right? And on your balance sheet, particularly for a business, you have your assets on one side, your liabilities on the other. Assets are good, so to speak, liabilities not so good. Assets are positive, liabilities are negative or potentially negative. Your assets are things like cash, equity, equipment, inventory. These are all things that can make you a profit. They're going to be good. Liabilities are things like debt, taxes, things that are either taking away value from your business or are about to take away value from your business. It's just a fact. Every business has it. And when investors go in and consider, to consider investing in a business, they'll say, let me see your balance sheet. You know, of course, you want your, your assets to outweigh your liabilities. And they'll, they'll look at balance sheets and they'll say, hmm, you know, the front page looks good, right? Your, your assets outweigh your liabilities. This is very encouraging. However, when I take a closer look at some of these liabilities, I see risk that's not easily seen on the surface. You know, there's this debt that you have to pay 
um, and you're paying $1,000 a month, and that doesn't seem to be a problem for you at all. But when I looked into it, I noticed that next year, about this time, there's a balloon payment due, and it's $30,000, not 1000 and that's going to hit you really hard. So what I need you to do is clean up your balance sheet. That's what, you, know, you, need to, you need to flesh this out a little bit. You need to maybe even go take care of some of these debts, but whatever it is, when I, when I see clearly what's going on in your business, and when I see underneath the early pages, if I still feel good, then we'll talk about investing. And what Paul is doing here in verse 7, he's clearing, he's cleaning up his balance sheet. But he's doing it in a much more drastic way than a business would. He's, he's moving his assets to the liability side. He's saying... These were gains. I thought they were gains. Everybody that would look at them would think they were gains, but now I see them more clearly. I'm, I'm, I'm putting them on the loss side. There's risk in putting faith in this flesh. There's risk in putting faith in my worldly accomplishments. It's okay, though. It's okay to have them on, on, the, on the liability side because my asset side has Christ. Christ is of surpassing worth. Nothing will outweigh the value of knowing Christ, as long as I'm completely aware that it is a loss, right? As long as I can take that worldly gain and put it where it belongs with the losses, it's not going to trip me up. Otherwise, I'm likely to be deceived, right? When we had the financial crisis, let's stick to the financial theme. I like to talk about these things. Um, When we had the financial crisis back in 2008, one one of many problems was that these debt backed Equities were being sold. People were investing in these, in these uh, vehicles, these investment vehicles, that were made up largely of debt. That's not a new thing. It's just sort of a twist on the bond market. But everybody wanted to buy them, and, and the price went up. Everybody thought they were worth a lot, and everybody kept buying them and pumping money into them, and they were way up here high. But then people started to look more closely at them, and they started looking underneath and saying, wait, what, what's really going on? And when the truth came out that not only were these things not worth what everybody thought they were, but in fact they were worthless in many cases, the market crashed, there was weeping and gnashing of teeth, and we love to point our fingers at the Wall Street guys and the bankers and say, you guys, you're, at best you're incompetent, at worst you're a bunch of liars, right? And maybe that's true, maybe it's not. But what about you? You know, what about the lies you're telling yourself? about your worth. You know, what kind of false gains are you hanging on to? You know, do you take comfort in your worldly position? Do you take comfort in, in your rank, so to speak? Are you hoping for comfort from the world? Is your greatest hope in that next job or, or buying that first house or getting out of debt? You know, are those the things that you're putting your faith in? You know, God says the only thing we can put our faith, or Paul rather, tells us the only thing we should put our faith in and hope in is knowing Christ. That is of surpassing worth. What does it mean to know Christ? Does it mean to know about Him? Does it mean to know of Him? Does it mean you've heard of Him? Does it mean you go to church? Does it mean you go to a certain church? Is there some sort of religious thing that you do that makes you know Christ? I think we need to understand this, right? This is something that if we want to grasp the surpassing worth, we need to understand what it looks like, right? Let's go over to uh, Matthew chapter 7. Indiana, we're going to be in Matthew 
7, 21 through 23. This is a familiar scripture. If, you've, if, if somebody's ever studied the Bible with you or if you've studied the Bible with others, you've probably come across this. <clears throat> and Matthew 7.21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them, Plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. You know, this, this idea of being known by Christ has some serious implications, it would seem, from reading this passage. It's, uh, it, 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 it's, a, it's of crucial importance. And, ha- and how do we, from this passage, surmise how to be known by Christ or to be in a relationship with Christ that has value? Not apparently by these religious observances, that the people uh, defended their cause with. But what Jesus says in verse 21, only those who do the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. John, 1 John uh, 2, verse 6, you don't need to turn there, but similarly, John says, in, in the New American Standard Version, it says, the one who says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way as he walked. It would seem to me from these scriptures that knowing Christ, being found in Christ, is a matter of obedience and is a matter of walking as Christ walked. These things will lead to this relationship that I think is of the surpassing worth that Paul is talking about. And, you know, in in verse uh, 10, Paul says, I... I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings. If we walk as Jesus walked and if we obey the will of the Father, we are sure at some point or another to invite some suffering into our life as a result of that. Right? Jesus tells us that. Now, we all want the resurrection that, that Paul's talking about. That's why you're here. Maybe you don't know that, but that's why you're here. Right? We're here because of the resurrection. But we don't always want to jump into the suffering. Right? That's something that will naturally cause one to think about shrinking back. But how could we possibly come to know Jesus without participating in his suffering? You know, those of you that are married, think about your spouse. You know, you know your spouse. You've lived with your spouse for X number of years. You share the same home. Uh, you have kids together. You've got some common uh, activities. You, you go on vacation together. But, and that's all fine and good, but, but it's, the, it's the suffering together that, that gets you into a deeper relationship with your spouse, right? It's not the, it's not the vacations that, that draw you close together. Those are fond memories and nice pictures, but it's the, it's the pain. It's the suffering. It's the, it's the watching your kids, you know, suffer, that, and you go through that together. It's the common goal, the common life, the, the submission that the two of you together give to the marriage and to God. As you live it out. That's, that's not easy. Everybody knows it's not easy. It's hard. It's, it is, in many ways, suffering. But that's what makes it so good. That's the relationship that we're striving for. Right? Do you know Christ in this way? 
Do you want to know Christ in this way? What are you investing in the relationship? Are you really willing to throw off all the things that you put your hope in and invest in a relationship that's based on His agenda, not on your agenda? You know, if our religion is empty and void of the love of Christ, lacking the motivation to walk as he walked and see his work done, then we're no better than the Judaizers we were talking about a few minutes ago. We're clinging to a religion. We're clinging to religious observances and not, and not seeking to know him through a relationship of obedience. Right? Now, I said we would talk about rejoicing. And you probably are thinking that this has gone long enough. I'll rejoice when you end. Um, but no, we've we got we to stick to this. We've got to hang in here. In verse 1 of chapter 3, we'll read it again. It says, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it is a safeguard for you. you know, the fact of the matter is, the world rejoices when it feels like it. All right, something good happens, makes you feel good, you rejoice. Um, you get what you want, you rejoice. Those things don't happen, it doesn't produce good feelings in you, so you don't rejoice. That's not what Paul seems to be encouraging us with here. You know, Paul was in prison. This entire letter is laced with references to rejoicing. Paul's in prison. Facing death. He says in, in verse 2, 17, and 18, he, he, he talks about, I'm, even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering, you know, that's, not a, that's not a pleasant metaphor. All right? that's, not, that's not some beautiful poetry that he's talking about here. That, that's, I'm, I'm being spent out. I'm being, it's, it's, it could be over. He says, but I rejoice. And you too should rejoice. That's what he says. Rejoicing is not to be the result of circumstances. In fact, it should be a spiritual discipline for us, something that we do deliberately. Uh, the Hermans uh, read uh, in, in chapter 4, verse 4, and I'll try not to get too much into that. I'm sure somebody some other day would like to preach on that. But um, it says to rejoice always. Right? And, and, in, and in verse 7 of that same passage, it indicates that rejoicing and thanksgiving, and um, let's see, there was one other thing. Uh, gratitude, rejoicing, um, thanksgiving. Anyway, read it. Um, it. It says it will be a, it will, the, the, the peace of God, which, which transcends all understanding, like, like the Hermans were talking about, will guard your heart. Guard your heart against what? Guard your heart against what? In verse 3, or excuse me, in chapter 3 of the text that we read today, he says it will be a safeguard to you, and then he immediately launches into the evildoers, right? It almost makes me want to believe that he's talking about them and what they might influence you with. That is what you need to be safeguarded from. Being safeguarded from false beliefs, being safeguarded from doubt, being safeguarded from things that attack your faith, Right? I think those are the things that Paul is telling us that this rejoicing can save us from. <clears throat> no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what's going on in my life, even to the point of death, if I have Christ, 
if I am in Christ, if I know Christ, I have cause for rejoicing. And you have cause for rejoicing. And the protection that comes from that. Could you use a little bit of protection? Could your heart and your mind use a little help as you struggle through this world of lies and misconceptions, lies about you, lies about everything, right? Could you use some help there that's available through the spiritual discipline of rejoicing, right? You know, Jesus is our Lord, and, and He saved us so that we could know Him and do His will. Our religion, such as it is, should be a, a deliberate walk driven by faith and an intense, ever-growing love for our Savior, whom we seek to please with every aspect of our life. You know, this week, we should take a serious look at where we put our hope, at what it is that we're putting our faith in, especially as we prepare for this campaign that's coming up. You know, we should be striving to throw off the misconceptions that we buy into about life and even about God. And instead seek to know this Jesus through a deeper and more joy-filled walk with Him. Amen. Thank you.